Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Editor's Desk here on Biz News Radio with me, Felicity Duncan, and with Biz News Editor-in-Chief, Alec Hug. Well, Alec, a milestone today, and I guess I should say happy birthday to all of us. Well, not today, it's tomorrow, but we'll, we'll make sure this interview is published on the correct day. Um, happy birthday to all of us here at Biz News. This is a, this is a big yeah. deal. It's a big deal for us. We were we started live on the 3rd of August, actually, so I suppose you could say it's our birthday, but it was late in the evening on the 3rd of August, 2013, and uh, we started live as Biz News, B-I-Z-N-E-W-Z dot Biz. <laughs> so we've come <laughs> a long way from that. A couple of uh, URL changes. Finally, we got the biznews.com address, uh, bought it from some... Russians who'd had it and I think abused it a little bit because we had some tough times in getting, getting it all <laughs> cleansed over the early days. But uh, here we are, six years later, and what an adventure. What an adventure. It's been lovely to be with you along the path, Felicity. I mean, we go back a long way uh, in our money web days, and really, business has exceeded all expectations and will continue to do so in future, I'm sure. And it's very exciting. If you think about how many changes business has seen with you, you know, being based across in the UK and building up that side of things, and now we're returned to South Africa and all the political developments, it's been a very action-packed six years, not just for business, but for South Africa. It has. And I remember I was looking the other day at our projections, hoping that we would one, get, one day get to 50,000 unique visitors we are more than 10 times that number now. So it just shows it's, it's been a, it has been beyond uh, all expectations. And most of all, we've had a great amount of fun doing it. And we've managed to make a contribution, I think, to the discourse in South Africa, bringing balance where often there's just chatter and rumor and gossip and also, you know, portraying or, or following our mission to try to help South Africa become a peaceful and prosperous nation. Uh, we haven't succeeded in that by a long way yet, but uh, we're moving. I think we are moving in the right direction, and uh, we'll, we'll continue fighting that battle for as long as it takes. Right. It's a, it's a long walk, right, these things are. Now, one of the ways that I think Biz News has contributed or made a, a meaningful contribution to what's happened in South Africa is, of course, the uh, the story of Agritzi and his involvement in state capture. And you and I were just chatting a little bit about that and about how we came to the story, because it's been about a year now that Biz News has been covering it. And you had uh, this week a very interesting interview going into some depth and some detail there. Uh, but how did that where did that come from? Where did the interest in the story come from? Well, you'll remember uh, when you were running the editorial team at MoneyWeb that Barry Sargent, the uh, inimitable Barry Sargent, uh, used to give us all a bit of heartache from time to time. But he, he was an incredible investigative journalist. Uh, he, he could always get to the nub of issues. He, he was very hard for people uh, to sell BS to. He just was... A, an incredible human being. Uh, it, it's sad that he's he's departed, but uh, and clearly for you, it wasn't that easy to manage. But on the other hand, um, Barry went through a period. I remember one day I was called by another Barry, Barry Davison, who was the Anglo Platinum chairman, uh, and he he just left Anglo Platinum and he was involved in a company called Vulisango, who were a partner in 
uh, Simmer and Jack, which was a gold mining company. And Barry was in there. He was exposing things. He was really digging deep and finding quite a lot of warts. So Barry Davison asked me to get together with him and the shareholders of Woodisungo, who were the Watson brothers from, or some of the Watson brothers from the Eastern Cape. A fascinating family, a family that were as uh, part of the struggle when very few whites were. Uh, they were ANC operatives um, recruited through their involvement in multiracial rugby, which again was a most unusual thing for white people to do at that time in the in the 70s already. And they had then built up uh, their connection, their contact base, and uh, some pretty good businesses. They're very, very interesting um, people with a, a, a deep Christian background. They, none of them swear. You just never hear them swear. They, ne- they don't smoke. They don't drink. You know, they, they're those kind of people. Anyway, so the Watsons became public enemy number one in South Africa as a consequence of testimony that was given to the Zondo Commission Interstate Capture by one Angelo Agrizi. And Agrizi said that he'd had a Damascene conversion after going into a coma in hospital with a growth on his heart that needed to be addressed. And he, he apparently went to the other side, came back, thought he can't die with all this on his conscience, and he then had this Damascene conversion and kept the nation enthralled for days on end with all the disclosures that he gave. Now, right from the beginning, I thought this was very strange because he, he portrayed Gavin Watson, the eldest of the Watson brothers, as being primeval, being the man who told Agrizi what to do, to go and pay off this politician and that one. And the more I dug into it, the more I felt it was a bit smelly, not least because Barry Sargent had gone to that meeting with me with the Watson brothers, extremely hostile. But then in subsequent period, after he'd done his research into them and actually gone to the Eastern Cape to meet them, he became a fan. And you can you can see that, by the way, he writes about them in one of his books, Assault on the Rand. Now, Barry isn't here. He passed away, unfortunately, a few years ago. So he isn't here to tell us more about it. But I thought that given how good Barry is, this whole thing didn't seem right. And of course, now we've got, we, we've, we're going to have a whole bunch of books coming out, you can be sure, which are going to reinforce the greasy story, if you like, and not really look on the other end. And what we've tried to do at BizNews is always look for the other side of the story. So that's what I did. And this last week, uh, I had an interview with Valence, Valence Watson, who is, I think, the third of the Watson brothers. There's Gavin, the eldest, then Ronnie, then Valence, then uh, Cheeky, who is the, the the rugby player who famously turned down an opportunity to play for the Springboks to go and play multiracial rugby. So th- these these four brothers are uh, are pretty successful in their own right. And I had a chat with Balance, and we went through reams and reams of files to double check what he was saying as against to what was uh, given to the Zondo Commission. And my goodness, there's another side to the story. I think the biggest one for me is the is following the money. Gavin Watson, who is supposed to be this primeval, or is certainly portrayed as it, is lives a very modest life. Uh, he has he has a, a a little townhouse in Krugersdorp. Um, he has a home in uh, uh, Port Elizabeth, where they come from, which he bought in the 90s, and he drives a, a, a kind of run of the mill car. 
Whereas the man who's accusing him of being the, uh, the, the master manipulator lives in a palatial uh, a suite, has got well, a palatial home in four ways. He owns five Ferraris, a Maserati, a couple of golf carts made out of parts, would you believe, of Maseratis and, or uh, Lamborghinis and whatever and Ferraris. He has an art collection to die for, uh, uh, an olive farm in Italy, uh, a home in Italy, another home in, in South Africa. And you say, whoa, hang on a minute. Who's fooling who here? And then when you go through the contracts that the that Bosasa, which was the Watson Company, won, none of those contracts were ever challenged in court. And we know time and time again that when there are contractual differences or when there are other parties who are bidding for contracts with the state and they feel there's been some kind of cheating, it ends up in court and these things get sterilized. So it just didn't make sense. And I, I then uh, had this opportunity to, to talk to uh, uh, Valence Watson. We've we've got the podcast up there. The uh, the premium members can can go quickly and go and read the uh, the, the premium so, uh, well the the transcript of uh, the podcast. And there's definitely another side to the story. And I I hope at the very least it makes people stop and think. And something else turned me onto this Felicity. I've known Kevin Wakeford literally for decades. He was the uh, whistleblower in the RAND story. Now we see it all with Deutsche Bank and what's happened to Deutsche Bank. But when Deutsche Bank attacked the South African RAND, uh, I think it was in the 1990s, and really made fortunes out of the, to the misery of the South African people. And Kevin was the guy who was a whistleblower. He lost his job as the chief executive SACOB for it. And he has been named, he was named by Agritzi as a uh, miscreant. In his testimony. Now, this isn't the Kevin Wakeford I know. And on engaging uh, with him, he said he's, you know, he, he, he confirmed to me that that uh, from his perspective, it's all a bunch of rubbish. I also know a guy called George Papadakis, who was named by Agritzi. Well, I've known George for many years. And George is a forensic auditor who has uncovered unbelievable amounts of, of, of bad news. And George is also named as a bad person or as a crook in this. So to me, there's something didn't smell right. And I think now we, we've got the other side of the story. Uh, Agresi did phone me early on, um, was it Saturday morning, um, after the uh, interview had been published. And he said he wants a right of reply, and I'm really looking forward to speaking with him this week. Interesting, and I'm glad that you're going to be following up with him so that we can get a, a sort of 360-degree view of the story. And uh, listeners and business community members can really make up their own minds about uh, what's real and what's not. And I think that's been an ongoing challenge with everything that's coming out um, in the state capture inquiries and uh, everything that's happening at the public prosecutor's office and all of this stuff has been a real exercise in uh, identifying the truth and separating fact from fiction and, and deciding who can be trusted among a group of people that all look very suspicious and are throwing blame on one another freely. So, mm. uh, and, very, the, and the journalists, mm. the journalists themselves are almost fighting amongst themselves, choosing sides. And that's that's where Barry was so brilliant, was that Barry never made up his mind about anybody. He would go in there, open his mind, listen to all the evidence, because he was an advocate. He, he, he was a trained advocate. And uh, he, that's the, that was what made him so good. Unfortunately, so often in the media nowadays, people get a 
get information from a contact or a source, and then they will regurgitate that because they don't want to make the source feel bad and not give them more information. That's not journalism. That is uh, that is crusader. Uh, called it, I don't know, crusader writing or corporate communications or something else. It isn't seeking out the truth necessarily. And I, what I'm astonished with with this whole story is how few people have gone to the other side and asked people like the Watsons to tell them what's going on. Many of the journalists who have been covering this story have been taking it on a single source, listening to what is presented at the uh, Zondo Commission, and then regurgitating that as fact. Now, it doesn't, it's, it's one person's or a, a few people's uh, view on what the reality is. It's not necessarily reality until you check the other side. So there's, it's, there's a lot of noise in our young democracy, and it's only going to help us if we start assessing what lies behind that noise. Yeah, I mean, I would say there's a lot of noise just in politics in general. I think it's not necessarily a uniquely South African problem. I think <clears throat> the press in many countries is struggling to uh, do the job of presenting the facts rather than just presenting what was said. And I think that it's come under fire across and around the world for exactly that, saying, you know, it's not enough to just say, well, so-and-so in this position said X. You've got to say and we checked it and was X true <laughs> because, uh-huh. you know, yeah. and that's, that's just a, it's, it's a universal problem, I think. And, uh, you know, not, not only South Africa, but a lot of uh, Western democracies are struggling with this problem of, you know, is objectivity just repeating what people says or is objectivity going a little bit further and saying, is this a credible uh, set of things that this person is saying? And uh, not uh, not everyone is on the same page, I would say. And what should be done there. But uh, just before we wrap up, Alec, I wanted to touch on another story and, and something that's very interesting. It has to do with, let's call it uh, the big guys behaving badly. Now, one of the things that uh, regulators around the world are paying attention to these days is scale, right? Um, in a lot of business sectors, there are uh, huge, giant players who have accumulated enormous amounts of wealth and who have deployed that to make sure that they exist in a favorable regulatory uh, environment and who don't necessarily always behave well. And, you know, we're seeing uh, competition or antitrust investigations in the U.S. and in Europe of a lot of big companies, and there's renewed interest in this aspect of things. Now, you know, this week you picked up on an interesting uh side avenue of this bad behavior when it comes to big tobacco. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and this is another story I've been following for a few years. Uh, There was the fallout at South African Revenue Services over the rogue uh, unit, the alleged rogue unit story, which is shown now by the courts and by pretty much everybody else to have been fake news. But because it was propagated by the Sunday Times over a period of many months, people believed it. One of the victims, or perhaps the biggest victim of that, was a guy called Johann von Lochenberg, who was a, a former policeman uh, who became head of the uh, the investigative unit at SARS. And as he wrote in the first book uh, with Adrian Lackey, um, called Rogue, when they started getting a little bit too close to the tobacco industry, uh, that is when he suddenly got fired and, uh, and, and suspended um, as a consequence of political or interference by 
people with a lot of influence. He's followed this up. We haven't heard from Johan for a long time, and he's actually his Twitter account, for instance, isn't open. You have to he has to give you permission to see what he tweets and so on. So he's he's kept very much to himself, but and not surprisingly, because when you read Rogue, you see what he went through, which was really horrific. Uh, one of two hundred people who were taken out of these uh, revenue services by Tom Moyani during his regime. But he's brought out a new book called Tobacco Wars. And in Tobacco Wars, he completely throws open and changes the narrative, in my uh, uh, understanding anyway, of what's going on in the cigarette industry in South Africa. Now, just by way of background, cigarettes are around 50% of the price that one pays, that smokers pay for cigarettes, goes to uh, goes in tax. Uh, so it's a huge potential area for abuse and also very important for the tax authorities to keep an eye on it. Hence the work that Van Lochrenberg uh, and his team at uh, South African Revenue Services did there. What, he, what comes out in this book is that the independents, the small guys, and I've met uh, a, a chap called um, Yusuf Kaji, who's one of those who's been vilified in the in the media over the years as being a real big crook. Um, the independents, he said, are half pregnant, as Yusuf Kaji said to me. He said, okay, I cheated on my taxes. I've paid it up. Uh, you know, I won't cheat anymore. But what Kaji said was that the big guys are far, far worse through their transfer pricing and through the money that they take out of the country. They take billions away from the uh, from the treasury rather than the, you know, the, the, the few millions that me as an independent took. And there's this narrative that when he said it, it, it just uh, I, I met him in London and recorded the interview. And he was so the claims are so outrageous and so litigious or potentially litigious that I actually just sat on the story and kept it. But now von Lochrenberg has come out and really confirmed all of this in his book. And he has pointed the finger at British American Tobacco, which is one of the biggest stocks on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, is a secondary listing from London. And it is common knowledge that when von Lochrenberg was at SARS, the British American Tobacco were being investigated by SARS. Now, I don't know, we don't know whether who was behind Moyani. We've got our suspicions. But British American Tobacco, one of these big giants, is certainly an unwitting or perhaps not so unwitting beneficiary of the fact that the rogue unit has been or that the investigative unit has been called a rogue unit and that those investigations stopped. So there's there's a lot more. There's never again, never uh, uh, what meets the eye is never reality. There's always a little more. We learn, learn that as journalists, that as you unpeel the onion, you find more and more information. And this story, this Tobacco Wars uh, book, is should be prescribed reading for everybody at SA Revenue Services and, in fact, any concerned South African citizen because there is stuff happening here in this country which seems to replicate uh, what is going on in other parts of the world where multinationals are not actually behaving themselves the way they should be. And it's good to be reminded, I think, always that corruption is not a government phenomenon. It is a system-wide phenomenon, right? Um, and that when it when it occurs, when you see it crop up, you know, it's not just that there are people 
in the state who are behaving badly, but there are almost always going to be their counterparts in private business behaving badly. And I think it's important for us to keep that in mind and remind people of that fact, because uh, I think there's a, a bit of a tendency to uh, to have this idea that like business is is doing everything right and the government is holding it back and that's not always true right in cases some cases you've got to recognize that business is behaving just as badly um and for the same reasons right for the same reasons of greed and and a you know desire to get well, more than their fair share yeah you want uh, certain people are, are are motivated by share options make more profit for the company you get more in your bank account i i, I heard it described once as saying the people are not evil but corporates will make people do evil things because of the incentives that they're given. And we've seen this all over the world. Wells Fargo, for instance, where you had uh, people who otherwise, uh, when they went home and in, engaged in their community, were upstanding citizens. But at what, because of the incentive system at Wells Fargo, they, they cheated and created fictitious accounts that they could get higher bonuses. They didn't think they were hurting anybody, excepting they really were. And there are many, many examples of the supposedly upstanding corporate uh, um, entities who spend gazillions on their corporate communications and on their image. But within the organization, misaligned incentives get their people to behave badly. And as a consequence of that, who's to blame? Is it the person who's been poorly incentivized or is it those who create the incentives? That's why the chief executive and other executives at Wells Fargo and Volkswagen with their scandal on, on the diesel emissions, and you, there's any number of them, why the chief executives take the knock in the end, because they're the ones who agree to the incentives, and by doing so, they are the ones who are maybe sometimes turning people to do evil things. That's all we have time for. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to read a transcript of this interview, one is available on biznews.com up in the premium section. You can subscribe to premium. That's just five pounds a month. And that gets you our great firewall content and also full digital access to the Wall Street Journal.